Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Speed and Scale is an action plan for solving our climate crisis. It is a book. It's a website that has a full tracker. It is really about how do we take the 59 billion tons of emissions down to zero. And it came about from really a series of conversations with John and our team around how do you tackle this climate crisis? Where is the plan? And using a system called Objectives and Key Results to frame it, right? John posed the question, well, if we were to apply... OKRs to the climate crisis, what would it look like? Hey folks, super excited to share this week's episode with you. I read a ton about climate change and by far my favorite read in the last couple of years was a book called Speed and Scale. We know there's been a massive mobilization of capital, talent, and attention to address climate change, but how do we know it'll be enough? Speed and Scale offers a clear sector-by-sector -sector action plan and an online tracker of what we need to do to cut emissions in half by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050. It's incredibly well-researched, packed with data and inspiration, and it uses the tried and tested system of OKRs, that is, objectives and key results, to create clear goals that add up to a comprehensive plan. So some quick context for you. OKRs became a popular management system after venture capital investor John Doerr introduced them to Google in 1999. John wrote about OKRs in his book, Measure What Matters. He's long been a leading climate investor and donor and recently gave $1.1 billion to found Stanford's new School of Sustainability. Bringing the OKR framework to create a global action plan for climate was an ambitious and much-needed effort that can help inform climate action everywhere. For today's episode, I spoke with Ryan Panchadsaram and Anjali Grover. Ryan is a special advisor to John Doerr and is the co-author of Speed and Scale. Anjali is partner and managing director of Speed and Scale, overseeing the ongoing initiative to accelerate and track progress against the OKRs. We cover a lot of ground, from high level to nitty gritty, from code red OKRs where progress isn't being made to real reasons for optimism. And of course, also, what this all means for everyday people who care about climate change. Enjoy. Ryan and Anjali, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Great to be here. It's wonderful to be here. Fantastic. Well, we're a few weeks out from Climate Week. Uh, excited to get to see you in person and, and start getting to feel together as a community in the climate space. What are you looking forward to most during Climate Week? I think it's an awesome opportunity to get together so many people that have been working on various aspects of the climate crisis. It's so broad and it's so deep. And there is a real 
confluence of expertise that comes into Climate Week. And I think we get, a, you know, a great cross section of folks from across the country, but also people from across the world. And so, you know, it's, it's I think the U.S. is sort of marquee event as far as climate goes. And I'm really looking forward to it. There's going to be a different kind of energy there, Jason, as well, too. I think if folks would have told you if you asked that question a month ago, well, you know, the U.S., right, wouldn't be in the lead from a policy point of view. And and because of IRA, like you've got a leadership position that the U.S. is coming into these conversations with. It also creates great space for, you know, when you think about the local efforts that need to happen and all the groups that have been just really pushing really hard for action to happen at the state and local level. We get to have space for those conversations, right? Because the federal government has done a portion of its part. And now the conversation during Climate Week, at least on the US side, can be about what do states and local governments do. Great. Well, like I said, very excited to see you both and, and get to be part of that. And hopefully a lot more progress will actually happen during the week. Let's dive in. So much to talk about. And let's start by first getting a sense of what speed and scale is and how it came about. So Speed and Scale is an action plan for solving our climate crisis. It is a book. It's a website that has a full tracker. It is really about how do we take the 59 billion tons of emissions down to zero. And it came about from really a series of conversations with John and our team around how do you tackle this climate crisis? Where is the plan? And using a system called Objectives and Key Results to frame it, right? John posed the question, well, if we were to apply OKRs to the climate crisis, what would it look like? And so we started with a draft set of OKRs. And in good OKR fashion, you know, you have to like iterate on, the, on them and actually share them with other people. And it kicked off a series of conversations with folks that were, you know, everyone from policymakers to activists to entrepreneurs to engineers to uh, political leaders to find out what was missing, what needed to be done, and what were the measures that mattered the most. And after, you know, the momentum around it, well, when I say momentum around it, I mean, you know, this was like really at the start of COVID, all these conversations we were having were being recorded, right? Because we were using Zoom. We felt like we were learning a lot. Remember these OKRs were at first, what were we going to do to help tackle the crisis? Just the sheer amount of knowledge that these experts were sharing, we felt that we couldn't keep it to ourselves, Jason. And so the book was born from that. It's got the 10 objectives. 55 key results. It's got 35 stories. It's packed with you know the insights of over 110 different experts. And so that's what Speed and Scale is. It's a very clear, numbers-driven, inspirational story, you know, packed action plan. I think there is, you know, sometimes we say it's it's more than a book. So obviously you can you can buy the book. But what I think is probably the crowning achievement here is that we've managed to still the plan onto a single page. And, you know, you can go to speedandscale.com and get download your copy of the plan. One of the things that we've heard over the last few months is that it really has been so useful in helping people to break down the problem, to understand, okay, we get it. We believe that there's a problem. We know that we want to do something about it. What is it made up of? What are the sort of sub issues underneath? And what are the solutions that we need to be focused on? So it's a book, it's a plan, and now it's a platform. I have to say, having used OKRs throughout my career, and especially my time at Google, I was thrilled when I heard about the book and really lived up to the promise of creating a very clear, very actionable plan that looks holistically around the world at all that we need to do to reach some important climate milestones. Let's get into the specifics and talk about what those are. So six of the 10 OKRs focus on specific emission reduction areas. 
and four are accelerants, as in interventions that help the overall decarbonization effort. Uh, this is an arduous task, but I'm going to ask you to quickly provide a flyover of the 10 OKRs, uh, and then we could drill down and get more specific. As you said, it's broken out into sort of solutions and accelerants. And in the solution areas, we really are focused on what are the sources of emissions. So we've got electrified transportation. That's pretty well-trodden territory. Most folks know that we need to electrify our cars, our heavy-duty vehicles. We've also got to find sustainable aviation fuel and find ways of making long-haul shipping more carbon-friendly. We've got to decarbonize our grid. And that, for most folks, means wind and solar is what they sort of think of. But we've also got to find other zero-emission ways of powering our society. We've got to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. The third objective that we have is really around fixed food. And I think the culprit that comes to mind is the cow, you know, eating less beef and dairy. But there's other aspects to this. We've got to find ways of making low emissions fertilizers, which are very carbon intensive and have other greenhouse gas issues associated with them as well. Rice is hugely carbon intensive and there's huge amount of methane emissions that come from food waste. And we're wasting a lot of it. Uh, an estimated 33 to 40% of the food that's produced today uh, does end up in the landfill. So we've got to figure out how to waste less food that comes from both the sort of consumption end of things, but it also comes further up the chain, mostly in developing countries where we see more problems around storage and transport. The problem is not isolated to what we eat. That's a big, big part of it. But we've also got to address other parts of the problem as well. Our fourth objective is to protect nature. That's to end deforestation, to protect our oceans and our lands. We've got a cleanup industry, which really means taking those hard to abate sectors like cement and steel making and figuring out how to make them more clean. We know that the world is going to continue to grow over the next 30 years. So not producing is not an option. We've got to figure out how to do those things in a cleaner, greener way. And lastly, we've got to remove carbon because we're not the only ones that are going to tell you this, but there are, you know, even if we try as we may on all of the other fronts, we're going to be left with 10 gigatons of emissions that we've got to figure out what to do with. And our plan calls for a mixture of both nature-based removal as well as engineered carbon removal to address those those remaining emissions. And so Jason, Ange covered the first six objectives, right? That gets us from 59 to zero. But we know that you know if we do that in the next 100 years, that's too slow, right? We've got to get to zero by 2050 and find a way to cut our emissions in half this decade. And so we've got to lean on four accelerants to get us there. The first is winning the politics and policy, right? This is having countries not only make commitments vocally, but pass the legislation needed to accelerate the transition. We then have to turn movements into action. This is everywhere from the ballot box to the boardroom. So to actually make climate a top voting issue, to get in elected leaders that prioritize the issue as well as take action on the issue, and even getting companies themselves to make these commitments as well, right? Every Fortune 500 company should have an aggressive climate carbon emissions commitment. We then have to innovate. And the real true measure around innovation is can we drive down the cost of clean green technologies across the board? And then we've got to invest and we have to invest like our lives depend on it because they do. We've got to have more research and development dollars. We've got to get more venture capital dollars. We've got to get more project financing dollars and even more philanthropic dollars into the space. And so these are the four accelerants that we can pull on to get those first six objectives to move faster. 
Perfect. Thank you, both of you. It was a lot of information quickly and for listeners that might need to catch up. We will definitely include a list of all 10 OKRs in the show notes and also links to the uh, the Speed and Scale website, speedandscale.com, where there's many great visualizations. You'll be able to learn more about them. Now that we have the high-level view, let's zoom in to one of the objectives to understand the level of specificity of the key results, because that's really what's powering them and making them as impactful as they can be. So can you share perhaps your favorite objective and then use that as a way to walk us through the key results that sit underneath the objective and really provide the specific guidance on what needs to be accomplished? My favorite one right now is really around electrified transportation, I think, because there's just so much excitement there. But also, it's the one that most of the listeners here can actually feel in their day-to-day lives, right? So the objective is simple, electrified transportation. And by doing that, we're going to be reducing eight gigatons of transportation emissions to two by 2050. And so that's the, the goal. One of the key results is for electric vehicles to achieve price and performance parity with new combustion engine vehicles in the US by 2024 and in China by 2030. And so this measure here really is saying cars have to become cheaper, right? If the electric vehicle continues to be more expensive than the fossil fuel one when someone's going to buy a car, well, then this transition isn't going to happen at the pace that we want. And so this is an example of a key result that's like a early warning indicator. Is this transition going well? And so this actually result itself was doing really well till the start of this year when supply chain woes across the board have actually increased car prices, both fossil fuel ones and electric ones. But the price continues to drop in a certain category of vehicles, Jason. It's even there's a sweet spot of like the thirty thousand dollar car that's there with the, you know, the Kias and the Hyundai's and the Volts. That's really competitive. And the new IRA legislation, which gets passed, which continues this tax credit of seventy five hundred dollars for US-made manufactured vehicles, like really makes this affordable. So powerful key result. The next one is key key result 1.2, which is one of two personal vehicles purchased worldwide have to be EVs by 2030, so 50%, and 95% by 2040. And there's strong momentum here. What's kind of incredible is EVs were only 4% of the global auto sales in 2020. And at the end of last year, that rose to 9%. Like when you look at that curve, it starts to look exponential. You go to countries like China, it's at 26%. Countries like Norway are, you know, above 90, nearing 100%. And that's super exciting because the market, because people are actually seeing that this switch to electric isn't only good, isn't just good for the planet. It's actually a better car for them. And there are a few more key results, of course, in this one. There's one around buses and trucks, ensuring that purchasing decisions around those are made clean and electric. KR 1.4 is really the measure that truly matters, like how many miles driven are electric versus combustion. And so each of these objectives have four to five key results that show the measures that we need to be pushing on to ensure this transition happens. And so that's just one example for electrified transportation. Fantastic. And right, there's six total key results underneath objective one. The ones that you didn't mention were planes and maritime. So thinking about shipping. Fantastic. Thanks for the specificity of that really brings to life how the OKRs work. And so if we look at them together, really, we can understand that we need to succeed in achieving all 10 high level objectives and all the underlying key results to really avoid the worst consequences of climate change. But of course, we have a very long way to go in achieving most of the objectives. 
recently you launched a tracker tool on your website. And honestly, I think the tool is as valuable as the book itself. It's well-designed, intuitive, and allows anyone to see how we're doing on any of the key results. The tracker can be filtered by OKR or by level of progress. And to give listeners a quick sense of how we're doing, here's a quick summary. There are 47 key results listed under the 10 objectives. Of those, one of the key results has already been accomplished. Five of the key results are listed as having strong momentum. 10 as limited progress, 21 as off course, and 10 as code red. So first it's worth noting for a moment of optimism is that the one key result that has been accomplished is that over $50 billion in venture capital was allocated to climate last year. And hey, that's promising, right? Is that means that we're investing in solutions. And not only is a massive amount of capital being deployed, but also a massive amount of the world's best talent is now focusing on climate. Yet still, I need to ask, what's your general feeling or reflection as you look at the tracker and see this distribution and reckon with the fact that the overwhelming majority of key results are really nowhere near where they need to be? We built the tracker in part because we were very keen to continue to measure what we had put forth in the book, the planks of the plan. And in building out the tracker, it was our first opportunity since writing the book to really take a look at how things had evolved since the time of writing. And not that much time had elapsed, I think like six months or so, as we were getting the most recent data uh, for this year. And it was a sobering reality that in a year, which, you know, or six months, which maybe doesn't sound like that much time we had made so little progress. Obviously, the venture capital data point that you alluded to was was really uplifting for all, all the reasons you shared. But it's very clear that there is a lot of work to do. But I'll also say that as Ryan's kind of already talked about, the momentum and the sense of hope that you have around tackling this challenge can change on a dime. And we've seen that in the last month alone. I think from you measure sentiment at the beginning of the summer and where we are now, I think people are are really in their sense of optimism has been renewed. We got the most, uh, you know, I think historic legislation around climate that the federal government has ever passed is now law. And we expect that to not only have great effect here in the United States, but there to be knock on effects that we see unfold in commitments internationally. So it's sobering for sure. There's a lot of work to do. And I think that is even more of a reason for people to stay focused on this issue. But we're in a moment where I think we can just look back at the last month and, and sort of really see how fast and quickly things can change. Anyone who, who sort of works in climate for a long time, I think has to have a real sort of thread of optimism running through them. If you didn't have that, you, this probably wouldn't be the right place for you to work in. Yeah, you've got to be able to hold those two things at the same time, which is the fact that we still emit 59 billion tons, right? The data that we have is the UN data from two years ago, and we're still waiting for last year's data to be published. And there's a reality that the number is going to be going up, Jason, no matter what happened during COVID, emissions still roared back. But you then have to see all the promise and exciting things like the green premium disappearing for solar and wind. And it's actually a green discount to deploy those technologies, the amount of venture capital flowing behind this, the amount of people switching over to electric vehicles. Should it have happened 10 years ago? Absolutely. But it's not. And that's one of those things that you have to keep carrying at the same time. We are so behind on this transition. But 
there's all this optimism to be held as well too, that the things that a lot of folks have been, ad- been advocating for for such a long time are finally happening. And so we just have to do everything in our power to ensure that that transition happens as quickly as possible. So I took a deeper dive into the code red results. And you know, I think fair to say is code red means we're just not doing anything or not moving the needle nearly enough. It's not even that we're off track, but it's just, we're not seeing progress. I actually wasn't surprised by most of them, right? As they're ones that are deeply baked into our society and are not easy to change. Things like dramatically reducing the carbon intensity of steel and cement. There's great innovation being invested in there, but it just takes a long time. Here's what surprised me with some of the code reds. That rather than phasing out coal, there's still hundreds of coal mines being developed, just getting started that only a small fraction of the corporate leaders making commitments are actually making climate commitments that are bold enough that we're still paying trillions of dollars of subsidies to fossil fuel companies and that we're not reducing our consumption of beef and dairy, which contributes nine gigatons of global emissions annually, which is about 15% of the total. So these things surprise me because they're really reflecting that it's not about a technology not being ready, but rather reflecting outdated thinking and a lack of commitment. And obviously, through your book and all the accompanying efforts, you're putting a lot of effort into shifting this thinking. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Are mindsets and the large-scale investments changing? Is it just that there's too much vested interest in the old economy to see rapid change? What else is needed? I think the truth is a bit more nuanced. The reality is that we're at a population of about 7 billion today. By 2050, we're going to be at about 10 billion. There are some real tensions that we experience as the world develops. As households hit $10,000 in income, there's two things they almost always do. They increase their consumption of meat and dairy, and they buy motorized transport. So while we see progress in certain areas, we're also reconciling with a very real challenge of the world is growing and people are as they should be uh, able to afford things that make their lives better. That's one of those sort of physics problems of climate change. That's just very hard to kind of answer in a seamless way. But I think we are seeing the signals. I mean, we talked about the venture financing dollars have increased. We're seeing a lot of great signals. The key is that we need greater speed and we need greater scale. So things are shifting, but not nearly at the pace that they should be, and not nearly as much as they should be in this in the short amount of time that we need them to. Part of putting the tracker together, Jason, you know, you very quickly were able to hone in on exactly where the problem spots were, right? We're not phasing out coal. Very few, right? Less than 2% of the Fortune 500 have bold climate commitments. Trillions of dollars of subsidies are going out there, and that our consumption of beef and dairy is still high. Those are key results that we want people to focus on. Because for those four decision makers, everyone from a policymaker to an activist to an employee at a company can start to bend and move the needle on these. And so part of why we are putting so much effort behind speed and scale and this is around pointing people towards the gigatons and really letting them use their agency, using them to use, let them use their leadership power and position to help take action on this. And so, yes, to answer your question around, is there a lot of vested interest in the old economy? Absolutely. Remember, 59 billion tons of emissions are someone else's business model, right? You know, you're emitting uh, tons when you drive your fossil fuel vehicle, switching to a Tesla or a clean green one is switching to a new economy. And so, absolutely, there's a world of vested interest, but we have to 
switch it. And it's not going to be easy. And there are a lot of lessons from, you know, the prior clean tech wave that we've been able to learn from. And, uh, and we're trying to do it right this time. One of the other interesting things to, to pay attention to is that the rate of change is not going to be constant or linear. And though we don't, we're not always, you know, getting green lights across these KRs, it is really interesting to see how some of them advance year over year. So for example, on KR 1.2, around the sale of electric vehicles, we saw EV share rise from 4% in 2020 to nearly 9% in 2021. That's not a linear change. And I think that's a kind of great reason for hope. It, you can imagine that if we make those kinds of leaps across a multitude of KRs, that this is very doable. This is very achievable. And I, I think, you know, we don't, not every KR is going to advance in that kind of way, but there certainly is reason for hope. So let's talk more about the reasons for hope. As you are monitoring progress around the world, what's most encouraging to you right now? So reasons for hope, you know, on winning the policy and politics, the US is now back in the game, right? That is such an incredible move and sign and signal for the world, right? Europe and its commitments are, have actually been really strong these past two years. The US going up in there with them really puts pressure on countries like China and India and others to step up their game. In the world of turning movements into action, you know, what we're seeing is, yes, while the number of companies that have a significantly aggressive climate commitment is only at that 2% number, we've been trying to engage with every single Fortune 500 company to get clarity on what they really mean around their goals. And when we spend time with them, they want to be ambitious. They want to put a really aggressive goal out there. And so I think what you're going to see is this refresh of really clear, ungreenwashed goals from the people that are really doing meaningful things, right? The companies that are putting investment around cleaning up the energy that's coming up into their buildings, you know, turning their fleets electric and so forth. You know, I see a lot of hope in the world of innovation, right? Last year, it blew through that, you know, the venture capital dollars mean that there are companies that are actually working on new forms of energy, new forms of storage, new forms of, you know, producing hydrogen more cheaply and effectively. I get hope around the consistent pace of project financing that's going behind solar and wind and battery projects around the world. There's a recent piece by Bloomberg that was kind of, you know, they, they do projections out there, out there and in the future. And one of them was showing one of their projections, which is they're tracking the number of solar plants that are being commissioned in the world. And in, by 2025, it's near that thousand gigawatt mark that there will be that much production in 2025. And the reporter kind of, you know, says, well, that's 5% of the world's energy use. And that kind of optimism around if we get to that pace by 2025, where we're producing near that thousand gigawatts of solar, and it's adding 5% plus 5% plus 5% every year after that, that's incredibly exciting. And so there's so much hope around these accelerants and so much excitement, but there's still so much more room to go, Jason, right? Like we actually have to start producing a lot more of these things at scale. We need more innovations to come out in the energy space, right? You've got this world of new kinds of nuclear companies, both on fission and fusion that are just at the cusp of doing incredible things. And so I'm a very optimistic person. I see those as all being real game-changing things in decarbonizing how our world works. Ryan, let me circle back to something that you mentioned briefly before, which is that you're gathering insights from the lessons of having been here before. 
John Doerr was one of the biggest investors in Cleantech 1.0, an earlier investment phase of trying to develop renewable energy technology. And there's at least a perception in the market that it didn't work out well for many investors. One is, I'm curious, in the book, there's actually discussion that it actually did work out well um, in terms of the returns for Kleiner Perkins and, and John Doerr. But tell us more, is, is what actually are you bringing forward in terms of the lessons and insights from, from having been in the space before? The big lesson in that one is it takes a lot more persistence, a lot more guts, and a lot more capital than expected to see these wins happen, right? There are incredible examples of these companies in the public markets now. Companies like Enphase, companies like Sunrun, Tesla, like these are all clean energy winners, right? The clean transition. What's kind of neat about these examples being out there is that it has has been fuel for this next wave, right? In that first period of investing by you know, Dor at Kleiner and uh, Vinod Kosla and Bill Gates and others was that there was no real proven companies out there that showed that this theory of change could, you know, could, could, could be proven true, right? Like we could build a company that could scale, that could really take over these, these markets. And that kind of piece has been proven already by the first batch of investors. Yes, it was a hard road. Yes, it was full of, of lessons to be learned from. And, and by the way, I'll share a few right now. You know, one of the big lessons in the first wave was there are a lot of projects that are still and should be kept in the research and development phase. You know, pulling them into a company mode, company building mode too early can really set yourself up for some failure, right? I mean, you know, taking early risk is important, but there are some ideas that still need to be cultivated in that lab environment. That's why we push so hard on adding more dollars into R&D. And so that was one lesson in learning. There's some ideas that need to be gestated just a bit longer in the lab. Another one was this reality that if you're going to play in the commodities market, cost is king, right? If you're going to sell a fuel, guess what? Your price, the green premium actually matters here. And so in the space of energy and storage and fuels, this concept that Bill Gates really popularized, the green premium is so important. What is the delta between the two? Sure, subsidies and other things can help lower that delta, but you really need the clean technology to be at a green discount. And what's been kind of incredible is for something like solar and wind, in 2018, that green premium turned into the discount. And when that happens, these technologies really flourish. And so that was a really important learning. Another one here, the learning when you look at the successful companies out there is that people will pay a green premium for things where performance really matters. And so it's around the things you eat in the world of Beyond Meat. It's around reliability and convenience. This is the world of Sunrun, right? People put solar and, and storage into their homes because they really want a resilient power experience during these outages. And that's why in Texas and in California, there's so much adoption of it. And then Tesla is the golden example here, right? People picked that vehicle because it was a fast, performance, safe, safe thing. And so, Jason, those were the lessons from the first wave, you know, um, on how to create a successful company here. And I think you're seeing this whole batch of companies that are that have been invested in now that know it. They've got investors around the table that have scars. They've got founders that this is their second or third swing. And it's very inspiring because everyone's really clear-eyed about what can work and how to spend the effort. And you've got alumni from the the SpaceX's and Teslas and you know of the world creating new companies. Yeah, so it's such an exciting time to see these companies being built. Fantastic. And so we have lessons from the past. We have people that are better informed. We are now able to measure what matters and have a tracking system to to keep up with progress. 
Uh, and despite the fact that there's a lot of work to do, there's reasons for hope. And so I'm curious what it's adding up to for both of you right now. Will it add up to enough? How close do you think we can get in terms of really accomplishing the 10 OKRs and all of the key results? My answer likely would have been different a month ago compared to what it is today. I think the passage of IRA really does, it's not only a reason for hope, but I think it does change the calculus. The models project that we can cut about 40% of emissions by 2030. The goal is 50%, of course, so we're just a bit shy. We might get there with executive action. If we do what we're setting out to do, I think that the first milestone is definitely achievable you know, the 2030 goal, the 2050 goal, we are going to need, that is going to be even harder because it's not just about deploying and scaling the now, it's about inventing the new. And so that will call for, you know, an even greater amount of capital to be deployed, not just in venture capital, but across government R&D and project financing and philanthropic investing. And we're going to need, I think, a level of global cooperation uh, to get there that we haven't yet experienced. We're going to need to see financing, global financing happen that we haven't yet, that hasn't yet come to fruition. So I think it's sort of a take take it one step at a time thing. And, and of course, we don't really have the luxury of doing that here in this particular moment. But I think that the 2030 goal certainly seems within reach. And I think that as we get further down the path, I think the reasons to act will be more and more evident for folks. And that's not just the moral imperative or real reason for people to want to act around the planet. But I think this is one of the greatest economic opportunities of our lifetimes. You know, we're still having real conversations for good reasons about costs and green premiums. But as we get further down the path, I think it'll be more and more evident that this is not only the right thing to do, but that this is the most economic thing to do. That uh, 2030 goal that, that Ange talks about, you know, it, it is becoming within reach in the United States, right? And, and that's like a bit of where this optimism comes from. But for the world, Jason, we, we may miss this 2030 goal and we have to kind of check ourselves on what that, what, what that means, right? And for us, I think we are, if we can push the United States and Europe to meet that 2030 goal, like what that means is the amount of solar, the amount of wind, the amount of storage, the amount of electric vehicles, the amount of just clean energy technologies that are being deployed are at the scale that are needed to help the trickle effects to happen for the rest of the world. And so if we get to 2030 and emissions haven't been cut in half globally, but in the leading emitters of the world, you see that progress, that's going to be an incredible moment, right? Would I love the world to be at halfway by 2030? Absolutely. But if just it's the US and the biggest culprits of emitting over time are there, that is something worth celebrating because it then means the momentum is there and market forces are on our side. But Ange is absolutely right. Getting all the way there by 2050 is going to be arduous and hard, right? We have solutions for clean energy. We have solutions for vehicles. We don't have solutions for planes. We don't have great solutions for concrete and steel. We don't. So there's so many things there. And when we don't have a solution, it means that we need to be investing more in the innovative technologies and research and development. And, you know, Anne said it, we got to take this every day at a time. And I think things like IRA are examples of big, bold moves that can come out of really left field in the unexpected. And so there is space for other states, other companies, other countries to really be doing as bold of maneuvers, right? And so I think that's the plea that Ange and I would make to anyone listening is in the position that you're in, what's the big, bold thing you can do? 
What's the big, bold thing you can get your colleagues or a cohort, your community to do to show that this really matters? Let's go deeper into the impact of the IRA and in particular on priorities, right? As you are fully focused on working to decarbonize and working to create the conditions for innovations that help us meet our 2030 and 2050 goals and IRA passes, all of a sudden, I'm sure it shifts your day to day and your thinking about what you need to get done. And so as you look holistically at our priorities for accomplishing the OKRs, How did the IRA shift what you need to get done and what you see as the main priorities for us all? Yeah, I mean, $369 billion allocated towards moving us into this clean energy transition. And we see those dollars show up pretty much across every plank of the plan. So to run through from an electrified transportation perspective, we're seeing new EV tax credit, $7,500 for new clean vehicles, $4,000 for electric. On Decarbonize the Grid, we're seeing $30 billion in grant and loan programs for states and utilities to accelerate the transition. On Fixed Food, $20 billion to climate smart agriculture practices um, to improve soil carbon and to reduce emissions associated with agriculture. There's areas where we're, we're very rich in funding and there's areas where we're a little lighter. I would say Protect Nature is one where we're not seeing quite as much progress. So $2.6 billion in grants to conserve and restore habitats and communities. I think our point would be that this is a major opportunity for climate philanthropists to step up. And there's a lot of great conservation work underway and efforts to protect nature. And we need to scale those up. On cleaning up industry, like we talked about, those hard to abate sectors, $10 billion in investment to build clean manufacturing And then $5 billion in grants for um, removing carbon, whether that's healthy forest and urban tree planning, as well as subsidies for direct captures. We're capturing both sides of that particular objective. It's, It's amazing to see. And I think that we're seeing a fairly strong alignment around the objectives that we've laid out. So we're really excited about getting these dollars into implementation. And I think that's going to be really the key here is we, we now we've sort of set aside the funds and now we've got to go. It's going to be a massive effort to deploy them efficiently and quickly. One of the ways to look at it too, Jason, is like with you sort of ask what happens next. And part of this is how do you help the US implement this really well? right? All this money that's going to get deployed. I think there's over a thousand job openings across the Department of Energy and other places in government that are going to have to execute on these um, dollars being implemented really well. And so how do you help encourage people to go serve? I've spent some time in government and really felt it was some of the best professional experiences of my life. And I think if there's someone, you know, if the audience that's listening to this, if you're in the US, you know, think about how you can help on the deployment of those dollars. The other kind of lens that's coming to our our mind too is, well, if this has happened at the federal level, what can happen at the state level? California just passed some aggressive policy around ending the sale of cars and, um, sorry, fossil fuel vehicles by 2035. So what can other states do, right? Like what can you do at other states to set the bar even higher so the federal government can learn from it? And so this IRA milestone is one that's so incredible, is the mountaintop, but it's only one of the mountaintops and the peak is still so you know much farther away. And so, yes, there's, there's a lot to celebrate. Um, there's actually three sets of laws to be really celebrating the bipartisan infrastructure law, then the CHIPS Act, and this. The CHIPS Act put a lot of money towards research and development. The bipartisan infrastructure law does a lot for the foundational uh, investments that need to happen in the country and for project um, 
like project financing and demo projects. And then IRA is really about market forces doing its part to give people carrots to deploy these things. So it's just a very, very motivating time to be taking action. Well, I love that we're naturally turning to what people can do and particularly to help uh, contribute to the momentum that we've been building. And on the Speed and Scale website, you've also published one of the most clear and accessible action guides that I've seen. You break it down to uh, show recommended action for individuals, for companies, and for governments at different levels. And of course, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think is the most important thing that people can do right now. You know, the action guide was really meant to answer that question, right? And if you look at it, it is the plan, right? It's around how do you electrify transportation in your life? How do you encourage that to happen at the company that you're in? If it has fleets of vehicles, how do you look at your city that you're in and encourage that, you know, the chargers that are being deployed are in the right place? Or how do you just get people out of cars to begin with by adding protected bike lanes and encouraging more public transit? That's like the frame here, Jason, is that the plan is really meant to be that clarity that people are looking for. I think for a lot of folks that are listening too, you may go to it and go, oh, I already know these things, right? I've seen these on lists. But I think the thing that we try to do is to find the three actions that had the most gigatons behind them. And so in each of these categories, if we do each of them, you're really looking at cutting emissions in half, right? We intend on updating this list as well too, as the years go by when more actions are available. You know, For you, the listener, it's switching to an EV. Um, and if you can afford it, do it today. And if you can't actually just hold on to the vehicle that you're in till you can, it's about calling your utility and saying, you know, sign me up for that clean energy plan. And then it's also about changing the behavior of how you eat. And it's not going vegan. It's just eating less beef, lamb, cheese in particular, because it takes 10 times the amount of milk for cheese. And so Jason, yeah, it was meant to be to provide that clarity. And which one of these actions is your favorite? I always feel like we have so many in there that are really targeted, but which ones? Not being someone who owns a vehicle uh, and urbanite till the end, I think the clean energy one is a really rich opportunity. There's, I think it's it's probably the, the largest scale of change that we can have in our households for many of us. And I think that there's those opportunities are awaiting you at your farmer's market. If they're anything like mine, those, those folks are there and they're ready to sign you up. And of course, Ryan mentioned that you can talk to your local utility as well. But I, you know, I think what's interesting to me about the energy issue is that I think for a lot of households across America, it's a chance to be energy independent. And in places like California and in largely, you know, across the West where we're seeing that wildfire season really extend and blackouts becoming increasingly part of the equation, I think having solar on your rooftop, having your own sort of source of power is powerful. And that to me feels like a a great opportunity. And hopefully we'll start to see policy shift in a way where it becomes increasingly attractive for folks to do that and then feed their excess power back into the grid. And so that to me feels like a really interesting systems level change that the economics are increasingly on the homeowners uh, side. Ryan, Anjali, thank you both so much for everything that you've shared today. And very excited to see the continued progress be tracked on the tracker and to continue to see our OKRs advance. Really, thank you, Jason, for the space to to really have this conversation. I think we encourage everyone to go to speedandscale.com and find which KR speaks to you, find which action you can take today. But really, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, 
sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.